Hello and welcome to episode two, season one, 2024 of the NCG Golf Podcast. My name's Tom Irwin and I am, as ever, joined by Steve Carroll. We sound like some sort of American sitcom, don't we? With these, with these series one, season one, episode two. Sorry, American. Or something. Hmm. So it's good. It's this is the good news podcast. It stopped raining. Hey, now, everything's now frozen. But we'll put that to one side. Uh, but it's been quite a good week, hasn't it? I'll tell you what I really enjoyed this weekend. I didn't watch loads of it, but I love the reassurance of the Middle Eastern golf. Like, I love putting that on in the mo- on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning before heading out to kids sports and it's all blue skies and short sleeves and big names. It's It's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, you know it's a decent tournament when I watch it. Um, I don't necessarily watch a massive amount of pro golf, but I watched parts of um, parts of stuff from Dubai, including that thrilling finish where McElroy stuck it in the water and Fleetwood surged through with birdies at 17 and 18. And I was genuinely captivated by it, actually. And I thought I, I, it made me wonder whether I was actually A, going to watch more golf um, this year on TV and B, whether I was um, whether I found something that I like when it comes to watching tour casts as it were as they might say in america because it was a genuinely interesting finish like the last hour in dubai was compelling um just who's going to do it and it was fantastic just think there is i mean obviously the strength of field helps right and um we all turn on to watch rory but like i said i just think there is something in the scheduling of it where it fits into your life it's sort of an unexpected pleasure and it's almost like golf sort of peeking out from behind the curtain saying i am still here you know i realize you can't do it at the moment but give it a month or so and you'll be out here in your shirt sleeves smashing it 300 as well i thought it was a great time for it to be on as well because i was sort of lounging still um whereas in the evening i've kind of got things that i'm doing um, but it started at half past seven. I sort of bleary eyed, put my laptop on, stuck on the stream, and there it was. It was on, and it, it kind of oh, I'll just yeah, I'll just sit and laze around and watch this for a bit. It's absolutely luxurious, isn't it? I tell you, it wasn't luxurious, which was taking my kids to play golf for the first time this year on Saturday afternoon. I just I'm going to have to rethink how I do this. So we played like six holes of the par three at, uh, at White Ridge. I say play. I carry two golf bags and have to deal with like two very, very sort of temperamental, high expectations, uh, nine and seven year olds. It's it's a real test of patience. And I, generally speaking, I get through about five holes. And then by the time we're on the last, I've sort of lost it. And they're like, Daddy, why are you so grumpy? It's like, it's not me that's grumpy. It's you that keeps moaning about not imperfect golf shots. Anyway, then we went to use the uh, brilliant Top Tracer range, not for the first time, and that was a lot better. They're much happier killing fish in a barrel or whatever it is you do. Uh, At least you're too enjoy golf and there's the prospect of perhaps um getting them into the sport properly as they get older i I suggest going to a range or going to a golf course to my eight-year-old and she just laughs at me she just giggles because the prospect of it is so amusing to her that um why am i even asking and you played though didn't you i hear i did um i had some competitive action would you believe it was the first round of the winter foursomes the delayed winter foursomes in a sense because the weather's been so bad we had to play the game on deadline day and it turned into in the best possible sense uh, the two guys we played were absolutely superb great lads but the match itself was an absolute war it was a complete it was a complete battle and a real kind of um 
contrasting styles really so we we th this is at the the course that shall not be named but i'm going to name it it's, it's, it's obviously close house we played at close house on the colt course um obviously it's been wet the course was open but there's been a lot of rain um and our two uh playing partners in the foursomes both hit the ball miles in comparison to us i'd made what i thought was a fatal error um before the game by forgetting my driver I left my driver at home. So we've got a wet golf course, foursomes, and I'm going to have to hit three wood. Um, my mate, who's a very, very steady golfer, sort of calmed me down and basically said, look, you know, the ball's not bouncing anywhere. You're not going to lose that much in comparison to your, to your drivers and just relax. But the quality of golf, Tom, was just, for foursomes, was superb. We were both one over par gross through eight in, in foursomes, which is good right i mean that that's that's yeah, decent good, yeah. um and um we got two up i'm not going to give you a hole by hole but we got we got two up after the 10th thought that we'd like made a decisive blow we then lost three in a row so we were one down um standing on the 14th which is a lovely par three um our opponent um he hit one of the purest iron shots I've ever seen, right? It was absolutely fantastic, but just airmailed the green, put him in an absolutely difficult spot for his partner, chipped downhill. I He hit wedge, right? I hit seven iron. That was the difference between us in, in terms of yardages. I hit my seven iron to about 10 feet. We managed to win the hole. Um, and then we won 15 and 16. I played one of the best shots I've played in a long time on 16. It was reduced because of the weather, so it was reduced to a par three. It was 110 and 99 to about eight feet, right over the top of the flag. Um, and that was decisive. And we move on into the next round, and it was fantastic. But it was really, really good. I, enjoy, I like just to get back into battle again, play some proper golf. I love foursomes anyway. It's a format that, um, that I really, really embrace. Um, and... Like me and my partner, we played some really, really solid golf. And when we got one down, we just looked at each other and just said, no, we're not losing. Um, and then to do it, it was fantastic. That's, that is quite a nice tale. It's a really, it's a beautiful tale. And it's like, it's so, it's so enthusing. Like you, you're buzzing because you've won. You're buzzing because you've beaten some longer hitters. You've played foursomes. It hasn't taken all day. You've got out there despite the bad weather. It's unbelievable. Brings us nicely onto our, our main topic. Uh, so let's get into our main topic, shall we, Steve? We're going to have a big conversation about golf courses. Uh, we're going to get stuck into the anatomy of a golf trip. We're going to get stuck into the cost of golf. I think it's the time of year, isn't it, when the sort of turkey is long since forgotten. We're all in the depths of this sort of January blues. The weather's absolutely terrible. We've got frozen waterlogged golf courses, sub-zero temperatures. No one can get out and actually play golf. So we're all start starting to think about a time when we can get out and play golf, and that for many means planning a golf trip. So what we want to do is have a look at that in some detail. Where have we been playing? What makes a good golf trip? Where are we planning to play? What can you still do on a budget? And how much is too much for a round of golf? Um, now, Steve and I, we play a bit, don't we, Steve? Yes, we do, Tom. We've got a, quite a few notches on our respective bedposts. I'm pretty sure I've played sort of north of 90 in the GB&I Top 100. Uh, and quite a few more besides that. Um, I've done a bit of time on the NCG Top 100s panel. Um, and I would say that if I've been completely honest, the reason for sort of getting into the golf industry in the first place was a kind of love of playing good golf courses and being able to call it work. 
Um, it's delivered on that without a doubt. Um, so this is like a, I think this is like a bit of a passion project, isn't it? This podcast, this is something that we actually want to talk about. It's not, it's not something that is forced on us like WHS and all the rest of it. Like we, this is something that I think we're all kind of mad keen to get on and discuss. Shame on you. Shame on you. WHS and the rules are very much a passion project for me, Tom. Shame on you. But anyway. They are for some, but you've played you've played a bit, haven't you? Mainly in the northeast. Let's let's be honest about it. That's an, oh, that is an awful. That's an awful slur. Mainly in the northeast, I can't I can't I can't keep up with your ninety of the top one hundred. But I've I've done my fill now. I've done I've done nearly two hundred golf courses, Tom. That's that's not too bad. Yeah, I can I can see one of our special guests frowning when I said ninety. I think he's sort of questioning my my numbers <laughs> there. But we'll get into that in a minute. Um. And you, you still pay for golf occasionally, don't you? Which is sort of quite uncommon in our sort of industry of freeloaders and chances. Isn't uh, it? I pay for golf frequently, yes, um, for a number of reasons, really. Actually, one, I think, uh, if you if you just take the opportunity to um, enjoy the privileges that our industry provides, you don't really, I think, have a grounding on what things cost. It's kind of like the pint of milk argument, isn't it? I think. Um, and so I do, I, I pay out my own pocket. I go on a, a couple of trips every year. I've got one planned um, for the middle of March. Um, I'm going to be going back to Lothian. I've been mining East Lothian for the last couple of years. Um, so this year we're going to do North Berwick again. Um, we're going to do Gullen 3. Uh, I'm doing Dunbar and hopefully I'll squeeze in a nine round Musselburgh old as well. So nice little trip that I've booked. Um, I t- we tend to book, I mean, we'll get onto price, but we, we tend to book middle of March, sort of end of shoulder season, end of winter season, because you can get on some really good courses at some very, very good prices compared to high season. You can usually get reasonably good conditions unless you're unlucky. So this, this uh, Lothian trip I've got booked um, has cost me, uh, it's, it's obviously for the full, full weekend, Friday through Sunday, it's cost me just a shade under £500, which is, Fair enough. I think, pretty decent for the courses that I'm going to be playing, yeah. So you're an everyman, aren't you? You're like this sort of Neil Kinnock of golf podcasts, aren't you? You've like absolutely kind of man of the people stuff in it. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I like the Neil Kinnock comparison, but is it because I've got a bit of red hair? What's left of it? I'm also going bald as well. It's just this uh, obsession you've got with doing the right thing at all times. It's amazing <laughs> and to be applauded. Uh, I'm also sort of in awe of the fact you've already got these things in the diary. I don't know how you do it. That's very, very fastidious of you. Organisation, anyway, so Tom. Organisation. Yeah, it's fair to say that we're not sort of virgins on the topic of golf courses and golf trips, but we did think we would like a bit of help with this particular debate. So we've roped in a couple of very special guests. Um, both of our guests are sort of equally adept at expressing their views in a very erudite fashion on golf courses and golf trips. Um, there's going to be an awkward bit now where I introduce a sort of lifelong friend. So our first, our first guest is Dan Murphy. Uh, so in the interest of full disclosure, I've known Dan for, I think, knocking on 30 years now. Uh, I met him whilst being sick in a bush on the first tee at Moortown, heading out to represent Leeds University. Probably least said about that, the better. Um, I'm going to have a go at doing this properly, like it's a proper podcast where I give you like a little bio. So I think it's fair to say that Dan's, the bulk of Dan's golf has been domestic, something of a fountain of knowledge on British and Irish courses. He's chaired the NCG Top 100s panel for just over a decade, and he's been in the golf industry for nearly 25 years. I think I'm right in saying he's played just over 700 golf courses. I'm sure he'll tell us, and I know there is a list somewhere to back that up. 
Uh, his Twitter bio is not incorrect when it says he's a fan of Lynx Golf. Uh, and he's also, I think, spent a lot of time with architects, with course managers, with green chairs. And he's got an actual depth of understanding about what goes into and what separates one course from another. So what did I miss? No, nothing at all. Just reflecting on the uh, on the gorse bush um, story, it feels like that we've been uh, waging a war against gorse ever since, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and hangovers. Um, and you're out. You've been out and about a lot lately. You've been out and about in Ireland and Wales ahead of uh, the release of NCG's updated Irish and Welsh list this year. Uh, you got any teasers for us? Any spoilers? Yeah, we um, we, we go at our own pace um, with our top hundreds. Um, not as fast as some other people. Um, probably the way I live my life, really. Um, and so last year we were uh, update, working on our Wales um, and Ireland list, which actually hadn't been updated since pre-pandemic. So an, an awful lot uh, had changed. Uh, we've so we're just about to release. Um, a top 50 on Wales uh, and a top 60 on Ireland. I just go as far down as I think that there's some value to add. Um, and I, I, I find in those courses that once we're anywhere below that, um, you, we're just comparing one part of golf course with another. And I don't really have anything um, particularly meaningful uh, to add to that uh, along with my um, panel. So uh, that's why I spent um, most of my time course-wise last year. Uh, and then 2024 sees us updating our English list, which I think is my favorite list, just because there's always somewhere new to find. And even just when you think that you've got uh, to the bottom of it, then um, there are a few courses that are suggested to me um, by some of our wise friends. And, and what do you know? They're, they're absolutely worth uh, thinking about considering and so that there were always changes and i think the bottom part of the english is super interesting if you're into your your golf courses and your, and your golf course architecture amazing isn't it how every year every cycle of these lists you seem to dig out one or two new places that you've never stumbled across which is just bonkers isn't it if you think about the amount of time you spend with your head in it yeah, and it's it's the best bit for me. Um, I mean, obviously, it's um, a privilege to go and play um, at, at the very top courses. But it, the, the most, but I mean, you're not really telling anybody anything um, by you know. If, if I explain to people that Royal St George's is quite good, then I'm probably not adding a great deal um, to that debate. But um, I, I always think that if you can dig out eight or nine uh, towards the bottom of that list, um, then you're doing real service um, because you, you know that like-minded golfers will love going to play them and and recommending um, a course is, is a great honour and. Support responsibility and when you've got it right uh, and you're confident in it um, I just think that that's the most satisfying part of it so that's kind of the bit I enjoy the most these days yeah it's good and I think that's the thing that's offering people the most value perhaps um, so our second guest will be known to many of you already as UK golf guy from his very successful social media output he's otherwise known as David Jones I got my wrist slapped this morning for referring to Dave in a whatsapp so I won't be doing that again David is a Gullen resident, uh, or Gillen, presumably. If you go as David, I presume you also say Gillen. No, no, no. Uh, I'm very much a Gullen man, Tom. <laughs> uh, in the heart of Scotland's golf coach. Not a bad place to start, I don't suppose, when wanting to play great golf courses. Uh, his excellent blog, UK Golf Guy, is a website, and these are his own words, designed to help people plan playing golf at some of the great courses in Europe and beyond. Uh, also on his bio there, so describes him as a Scottish-based keen golfer who thinks too much about playing great golf courses and has been lucky enough to experience some of the best. He's a Levin handicapper with a lot of friends who are better and a few who are worse. Uh, he's agonised over which courses to include on a golf trip with his friends and fantasised about playing the best in the world. And his excellent blog really does bring those experiences to life, people. It's a pleasure to meet you properly, David. Uh, looking forward to hearing your views on courses. Uh, what did I miss in your bio? Anything 
anything else? No, I think that's pretty much got it. Thanks very much. Nice to nice to see you all, and uh, very much looking forward to the chat. One thing um, I didn't manage to sort of work out for your website you've got a travel business and certainly your twitter is full of pictures and snippets of you playing golf courses all over the place you've been to new zealand i think have you yeah so um i mean i had had a traditional job in industry for for 20 years straight out of university um went into to very much a normal career from that point of view and really started the blog seven or eight years ago maybe just as a way to keep a record of the different courses that I'd played for myself and my friends as much as anything. Um, and then got onto Twitter, started posting some pictures there, um, and got a bit of traction, found that that lots of people within the industry were very happy to share their views and did a few articles with, with them. And then my last job came to an end uh, during COVID. Um, and I live in Scotland, but the next jobs that, that I could have got into are probably going to be down south. Um, and rather than do all the travel, go into a big corporate job again, um, I kind of got into the travel business by, by really by accident to begin with. I, I organized a golf trip um, to Paris, managed to get access to some of the courses there, which, which are really hard to get on. And I stuck out a tweets and lots of people said, yes, we'll uh, come with you. Um, and then I did one um, oh, about 18 months ago, advertised a trip to Australia and again, working with a proper travel company in Australia put out a tweet and within six hours um 16 people had signed up to go on it so I thought oh there's Amazing. kind of something in this um and then have grown from there really so I did three or four trips last year this year we've got another four or five I've now hooked up with an American golf society called the Outpost Club um and we've set up a business called Outpost Overseas which which really is organizing trips predominantly in the UK but anywhere in the world really for, for people wanting to come so so not um not a plan 20 years ago to get into the golf business but it's kind of happens and and absolutely loving it it's amazing so and you, do you host people on all these trips so you've managed to create a job that just involves you traveling around the world playing great golf courses um, sounds like. up to a point for some of them yes yeah. so I'm, I'm off to australia for a month in march hosting two trips um which 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 would be great obviously when you get to scale um can't do that for all of them so if you're looking to to put a trip together with your friends i'm not going to turn up um and insist on playing every round with you and stay with you but i'll probably come and see you on the first tee offer um an overall service to put the golf together put the transport together organize all your dinner if you want to do a whiskey tasting all that stuff around it um so quite exciting that's cool. I mean, to be able to turn your hobby into a job, what a privilege. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like just the sort of background that's going to help today's conversation. So I think we should try and get stuck into a bit of the detail around where you two have been playing. Um, I want to get into sort of how you assess golf courses and how you put together a trip later on. Um, but I think we need some we need some gentle openers here, don't we? So you both played a lot last year, I'm sure. Um, I sort of know you did in some cases. Um, and I guess I'd be keen to... Um, hear about some of the places you've played um i think as dan alluded to earlier like we all know that um burtdale's good and we all know that st george's is good um perhaps it'd be nice to hear about some of the sort of unheralded places you played on your travels last year that you'd, you'd recommend to listeners dan you seem to have something to say on this topic uh well i don't i don't want to steal um steve's thunder um but i'm one that I noted down, um, just in terms of being a little bit unheralded, um, is certainly Seaton Carew, uh, which is uh, uh, in the process of very much being restored to um, former glories. Um, 
a very very historic golf course completely dropped off the radar um, in a in a kind of a, um, a national sense. Um, so I think people locally knew it was good, and people who really knew their golf, you know, remembered it. Um, but uh, you know, it had been a little bit unloved, um, perhaps taken for granted, uh, and that all changed uh, three or four years ago when. Um, the, the committee had the foresight to uh, hire Tom Coulson, a local greenkeeper who had gone to seek his fortune at Royal St. George's and then wanted to come home um, to the area, and they were very lucky. Um, but they, the uh, scene crew happened to be his area, um, and then um, I, I was looking to play it in, in 2020. Not much golf going on, the but I managed to go, uh, go up there, and he was just a few months in at that stage, and they'd basically not been able to tear him off the golf course Um because what he'd seen there was, uh, to him, um, scope for such huge improvement. Um, and it, he'd, and it, he'd got going straight away and they, they basically couldn't, couldn't get him to, to, to stop working because to, to his eye, there was so much to do. And, you know, within a few months, he'd got a seat in Carew looking a little bit like an open championship venue, which is just an unbelievable feat of, uh, of, of greenkeeping and bloody mindedness and, and determination. But also you couldn't have done it if the bones of the place weren't there. Uh, and and they, they they very much are at Seaton Crew. You know, I really believe that. Now, for for years, um, all you've been able to see at Seaton Crew is the uh, industrial landscape, um, which is you know you can't it's there you, you, you can't you can't say it's not. Um, but one of the problems was that you couldn't see the sea because the um, because a load of um, buckthorn had grown uh, between the course and the sea. Um, and they've now removed that. It's like a mile and a half of buckthorn, which is an amazing thing to, to contemplate. And suddenly, when you go now, what do you know? Because um, you get these views of the sea, your eye is drawn over there and it stops looking at, um, um, at factories and, uh, and chimneys. So suddenly, the, 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 there's something visual to see. Now, they're still well on their way with that project. Uh, one of the things that, that they're working on at the moment is, is because they've got too many holes, because they've got different permutations. Uh, and I think that the idea is that they want to find their best AT. Now, that isn't going to be easy to do, and no, no doubt the, uh, the members will have uh, an opinion on that, but it just seems to me an, an incredible opportunity uh, almost to create a new golf course um, because the green sites are there, the turf is there, the land is there, uh, there's certainly the, the green keepers there. Um, so to, to me, um, Seaton Carew is now a GB&I Top 100 course. I don't say that lightly. Um, annoys when people say that about courses that don't deserve it. I'm pretty sure it does. Uh, but I also think that the, the, the scope for it to go much further in the coming years. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to go and play there each of the last couple of years. So I'm fascinated to see how it's developing. And I hope to get back there this year. Uh, I can't wait to see how they're getting on. But I think that's a great story. And I think, you know, I'm sure the people in this conversation know all about Seaton Carew, but, but I think the wider world might not quite be as aware. I mean, I can add a, <clears throat> I can add a little bit of context to this because um, uh, as the crow flies, Seaton Carew is about four miles from where I was brought up as a kid. So it was always a course that was massively revered, um, particularly in the sort of Durham and Yorkshire area back in the sort of 80s and 90s. And I don't think listeners or, or, or readers who've read about Seaton Crew will be aware just how close to disaster this course came. Um, they had enormous problems with rough to the point where it was so uncontrollable that you used to just go there and lose balls. So it put people off because they would go, they would go there and they would know they were going to lose half a dozen balls. Um, so it was... It had been in decline, in inverted commas, um, for quite a long time. And and before Tom came, before the pandemic, um, they had a really serious problem with nematodes in their greens uh, to the point where they were, they were thinking about digging several of them up 
um, which I mean, that, that 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 is an unthinkable thing, isn't it, for a golf course to consider? We might actually have to dig up um, several of our greens. Um, when uh, when Dan went in twenty twenty, he actually asked me to come with him, and this will be the only time that I'll ever tell you that I was unenthusiastic to go to a golf course because I because I'd known what had happened to it in the past, and I was completely unenthusiastic about the prospect of playing a golf course where I thought, well, I'm just going to lose a dozen balls here. It's not going to be in great condition because that was my that had been my experience of it, um, playing it in the last two or three years. And for someone who grew up there and had understood the sort of culture of the the club and the history of the golf club as well, it's an Alistair McKenzie course. Um, that was particularly disappointing and then I went there and as, as as Dan said you know it was a revelation to see what had happened in just a few months that, that Tom had been in place and and what's happened subsequently I mean the course is just going from strength to strength. Have you been David? Yeah I went um, last winter um, and drove down in February and it was it was one of those such terrible weathers we got right the way out to the turn um, couldn't feel our hands anymore um and walked back in but did walk every hole on the way back in um and and I've absolutely i've got a list of courses to get to this year and i'm going to get there in the spring this year um but i could totally understand what you say in terms of we could see the sheer quality of the course underlying it um despite the cold despite the sleet and the snow um absolutely somewhere that i want to get back to um and it's always a, it's a bit hard looking in the winter but it, it was very playable we didn't have any of those concerns with the big rough or anything like that um and, it, and it's it's actually quite an interesting trend. I think some courses in the UK, some of the open courses, Dan, I'll be interested in your view, right at the top seem to, seem to be making the courses a bit tougher with the rough, but, but others um, are doing the opposite. Muirfield, for years and years, I thought they were setting Muirfield up far too hard. You'd lose balls. It just wasn't any fun. The last few years, they've just opened the thing up and suddenly everyone's enjoying it so much more. Um, there's very few courses which you say have improved because they've made um, they're putting extra rough. You know that just tends not to happen. Yeah, and, um, amen to that. Um, heard something very similar at Lytham a couple of years ago, um, where they're trying very very hard to thin out. Um, they're, they're rough, um, difficult because the the members are very proud of their courses being uh, incredibly testing. Um, sort of a, a perverse pride, I think. Yeah. Um, it's certainly, as far as I'm concerned, is not required. Uh, these courses um, are not good because they're hard. They're good because they're good. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying about um, about Muirfield and, and, and so much the better for it. And I, I guess a lot of the credit would go to uh, some of the new courses we've seen, the, the likes of Kings Barnes and Castle Stewart, where they've uh, they, they've introduced quite in quite extreme ways uh, sometimes the, the concept of uh, of width and, uh, and choices. And I think that some of our uh, championship courses have probably got feedback from people who have enjoyed playing the new courses more because they've been a bit more forgiving, they've had a bit more fun, scored some more points, uh, and perhaps they're, they're, they're taken that on board. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm all for it. And the, the, you know, the, the, the more chance we get to finish every hole when we go and play at the likes of Muirfield and Lytham and Carnoustie, uh, then the more enjoyment we're going to have. So, yeah, I'm all for it. Steve, what the hell is a nematode? <laughs> it's like, um, it's like a, how can I describe it? Very simply, like a microscopic worm. So and it's it, like a uh, sort of type of toad. It's not toad, no. <laughs> it's not a toad. <laughs> it's not like nematode. It, it, in, in huge numbers, in great quantity, it, they can do great damage. Right. I don't want to blind people with with agriculture um, and agronomy, and I'm not I'm not an expert on some of the things that nematodes do. All I can tell you is, in in great numbers, they're not good. 
Yeah. Anyway, they've got rid of those. And I've, I've been to Seaton Crew a number of times. I think I've always been with Dan. Um, and it's, it is amazing. It's, and it's also somewhere that people get wrong, don't they? You sort of think of a northeast down at Hill Links being a sort of quirky kind of um, short kind of uh, fun challenge. But it's not that, is it, at all? It's like proper championship golf in it. it the, some of the holes set up like places that you would find on the open rotor. Would anyone like to guess how much you can play Seaton Carew for right at this moment in time? £60, £50, like that? £40 is the cheapest yeah. you can get on at the moment without a visitor, without a, get, a member, rather. Yeah. It's not bad value, is it? It's a great deal. Although, isn't it? Yeah. It was an interesting place to start on this particular podcast, Dan, because I think if we were listing courses that get airtime on mine and Steve's podcast, number one <laughs> is the course which we don't mention, where Steve plays. Uh, number two is the other course that Steve plays at. Number three is Old Woodley, and I think a very, very close fourth is Seaton Crew. <laughs> it's sort of our go-to example. Uh, so I imagine listeners are currently rolling their eyes, saying, "Not bloody places in the northeast again." So I'm hoping David's got somewhere perhaps slightly more geographically distant for us. Um, yeah, I, I, I managed to, to play a lot of golf last year um, in lots of different places, but but I'll stick to the UK or the UK and Ireland for this one. Two trips um, particularly stood out. I took a group over to a Donegal, and and that's an area where you can still get really good value golf and a good quality of golf as well. Um, I think the new St. Patrick's links at Rossapenna is probably the reason why a lot of people who've never been to Donegal before are heading there now. And that's a Tom Doak course that, that opened um, a couple of years ago. It went straight into the top 100 in the golf magazine which is a u.s publication which is probably prints the world top 100 that is the most authoritative um and it actually went up this year it's in the top 50 in the world i think now um and it's it's a course that i love it's um it feels like it's been draped on the land plenty of width um but very strategic as well so anyone who mistakes the width for you can hear it anywhere and always have a birdie putt that isn't the case but to our previous conversation everyone's going to get around it. You're going to get off the tee. You're going to be able to get around. It's quite a big walk, actually, um, but but absolutely sensational. And look, that's that probably is €250, Euros, but when you compare that to what you're paying for an equivalent course um, in the UK or in the southwest of Ireland, um, it's, it's significantly cheaper. But then around it... Um, you know, you go to Port Salon, which is only half an hour away. And Port Salon's a course that, that, that I just absolutely love. Um, it's got a gorgeous setting there right on the coast on the bay. Um, pretty much an out and back course. That's going to be half the price of a Rossapena um, and a wonderful place. You go down to Critch Island, which is a nine-holer, um, spelt Cruit for those who are going to Google it, C-R-U-I-T. Um, it's nine holes. You go out there; it'll cost you thirty euros, forty euros um, on a summer's evening. Just, just a glorious place. One of the, some of the most spectacular holes you'll see, full of quirk. Um, so, so loads to enjoy. There's, there's, there's just a whole host of courses in that area, which I think, thanks to, thanks to St Patrick's and thanks to Rossapena, where there are three courses, are going to see a lot more activity. But you can get a tea time. So you'll be able to get a tea time at any of those at short notice. Um, it's almost the kind of place you can see if the, the weather forecast is good and decides uh, to go there, which, which you can't do with, with so many other places. So I really enjoyed that. And the group I had was um, 
a mixture from the UK and from the US. Um, absolutely loved it. We went the first week of May, didn't have a drop of rain. Um, they they just loved the whole experience. And then another one, I've been up to the Highlands quite a lot, but there was a few courses up there I hadn't played. Um, I stopped at King Usi on the way up this time, and it was the first time I played King Usi. A bit like um, you, Dan, I love links, so normally I, I try and get up as fast as I can to the links. Um, stopped in King Usi. I think it was £35 in the summer to play in the afternoon. Um, got around in two and a half hours and just such fun. Um, again, didn't look for many balls, just beautiful setting, lovely views over the valley, lovely people, such a warm, warm welcome. Everyone really pleased that, that you're there. Um, to your point, Steve, I paid the 35 quid because, you know, this is a small course and we should be supporting places like that um, and, and really enjoyed it. I'm not going to pretend it's a top 100. It's not a top 100 in the UK or anything like that. But if you're driving up, would would absolutely recommend it. Um, and that whole trip, clearly, Nairn, Castle Stewart, Royal Dornock, three fantastic uh, places to play. Um, Brora is another one which which has obviously got, got lots of attention over the last few years. But you go to um, you go to Tain um, again, lovely little place. You go on the peninsula there for Trows and Rosemarkey. Um, I think it's probably sixty or seventy pounds. Fantastic front nine. And then I went up to Ray, went up to Wick. So so there's tons of fantastic places to play up there. Um, and while yes, you want to play the big hero courses, they're going to be two to three hundred pounds each. But you could play pretty much all of the others for maybe sixty or seventy pounds each. Um, so that would be another area which which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and then I went so to you've Alan. Really, you've really you've really expanded the brief here, haven't you? This was unheralded golf course. You've gone for unheralded territories. Oh, there we are. Sorry, sorry. In which case, unheralded, I will pick Kigusi as my unheralded, and I'll shut up there. <laughs> I like it. So we we also I don't know who's going to go first here, Dan. I can see you sort of salivating to get in here. So we all we also went to Donegal uh, this May. I'm going to we say. all did, Tom, didn't we? We've all been to Donegal on this. We've all, list. We've all had a go on Donegal. Yeah, uh, had a similarly good time on St Patrick's Links. Did you play Sandy Hills while you were there or not? Yeah, um, I did play Sandy Hills, and there are some people who prefer Sandy Hills to St Patrick's. Um, I I'm not one of those. I'll be honest with you. I like Sandy Hills. Absolutely nice course. I tend to prefer courses where you can feed the ball into the green and I found at Sandy Hills I had to play everything up onto a raised green and maybe I'm just not a good enough golfer to do that so I I tend to prefer it when you can use the contours to bring it in rather than have to almost fight them to get up but I know plenty of people um, who absolutely love it there. We thought it was quite an interesting comparison didn't we Dan? Yes, we, we were there last June um, and had a, um, an absolutely spectacular um, experience. Uh, thought a lot about it since, uh, and uh, f- for me, it's the it's the best golf course that's opened certainly in the time that I've been involved. And I'm starting to think it might be the best golf course that's opened in the UK now in the last century. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really would go go that far now that. The, the, the beer discussion, but I, I'm really struggling to think of anything that's come near it um, as an experience. Um, certainly, in in, uh, in, in my time, um, it's uh, it's it's a very special place. I've been going to Ross Penner for quite a lot of years, um, and always been very happy being there. Um, but you've always thought that they were struggling to get enough people to go because uh, there wasn't quite the draw to it. Um, and, and, and that's true of Donegal as a whole. 
Uh, and as, as a local told me when I was there last summer, he said, you know, Kerry have been stealing all of the, the golf tourists for uh, for a long time now and, and and they've not been letting them come up here. But, you know, we think now that that might be uh, about to change. That's obviously nothing against um, Kerry. But I think now um, St. Patrick's Links is, is a genuine reason for anybody to go to Donegal. And then I know from my trips there over the years that they'll love the supporting cast as well. So if, you know, if the, even if St. Pat's Links is out of your budget, um, there's so much. It's, you know, it's my favorite corner of Ireland. Um, which is a Murphy. I've spent a lot of my, a lot of time in Ireland over the years. Uh, and I would, I would always tell people to head up to Donegal. And I, I would just add and just another one just on some slightly lesser courses. We, we had an absolutely lovely time playing at Northwest, which is mm. one of the worst names I've ever come across for a golf course. It's kind of almost unsearchable. Um, and do you know what? I do think that's one of the reasons why I've driven past it a few times over the years and not stopped. Uh, but we called in for a game there, and that was an absolute delight, partly because expectations were probably a little bit lower. Um, but that is a beautiful, compact, uh, well-formed uh, golf course with some lovely land, uh, very, very cute. As mentioning routing, um, but just just an example that there is there is golf there without having to, to, to spend hundreds of pounds. But that that said, if you if if you don't, you know, if you're going to do one thing uh, in Ireland. Um, you know, you would definitely go and ha- have a look at St. Patrick's Links and, yeah. and see what you think because it's pretty special. So yeah. two points from me. I mean, I must be the only person who went to Donegal who hasn't played Rossapena uh, <laughs> and St. Patrick Links. I didn't go there. Um, but but two other points. Um, I paid twenty euros to play Northwest. Twenty euros, um, um, which combined with Critch um, Island. Um, which was, uh, I think it was about 50 or 60 euros, must be the best value duo of golf courses I've ever seen. I mean, if you can't have fun at Critch, then why are you playing golf? It's, 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 an, out, it's an outstanding golf course. It really just spoke to me, um, the, the, the quirky nature of the holes as well as the setting. Uh, and Northwest for 20 euros, 20 euros I paid for it, and it was, it was absolutely incredible. If you can find me two better value golf courses than that. And then those golf courses allow you, the, the price of those golf courses allow you to fit Rossa Penna into your budget because you're getting such great value elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. So if anyone wasn't clear, Steve pays for his golf, all right? I don't know if we just need to <laughs> get that in block capitals. Oh, dear me. You asked, you asked, I told you. So we've all, I mean, we've all had an amazing time at uh, Critch Island, haven't we? The drive-in is just unbelievable, in it? And we had, like, the world's best pint of Guinness with the course manager, come pro, come bar steward afterwards. It was just fantastic. I do want to have a bit of dig into, which didn't you didn't really take the bait there, Dan, but I'll have another go at it. A bit of a dig into um, the difference between St. Patrick's links in terms of how Dokes put that together uh, and what you see in terms of the sort of remnants of 90s architecture in terms of what Pat Ruddy's done um, with Sandy Hills, because I thought that, I mean, we we left thinking that was a, a real kind of marked difference in terms of how those two golf courses on basically identical bits of land uh, were put together with such a different mindset. Yeah, and I, I, I think that um, David set that up um, very accurately um, a couple of minutes ago, just talking about the way that you get onto the uh, on, onto the greens. Um, uh, St. Pat's links where you can uh, you, you can run it in and uh, and uh, you can play along the ground um, and it's, it's trying to help you you know if you're skillful um, you know if you hit a bad shot you hit a bad shot but it's trying to help you and um, Sandy Hills is the opposite where there are times when I feel that uh, Pat Ruddy is uh, is cackling um, if he can manage to send a shot that, that looked for one moment so it's going to find his target and it, it then rolls back the other way 
um, and it's, it's you know it's, it's kind of almost like it's trying to, um, uh, to to catch you out, which is and I just think it's a different approach to uh, to architecture. You know, it's just fascinating to play the two courses on successive days. They're, they're, they're so different, and you know, and I was looking at. Um, Sandy Hills uh, through through new eyes, I guess, because uh, obviously we just, we just played twice at, um, at St. Pat's. It's just a very, very, very different type of golf course, and you know, I, I, you know, they have softened it off considerably. Uh, I mean, that really did used to be wild and tight, and and you used to you used to lose a lot of balls. Now I, I know they've done a lot of work to make it more playable, but still, it, you know, it, it, I can't hand on heart. It's just a different sport, basically, to playing yeah. at um, St. Pat's in terms of the way it's set up. But it is interesting to that point, Dan. Like. There's several people I know um, who prefer playing Sandy to playing St. Patrick's. And I, and I guess that's just because that's that's the kind of golf they like. Now, to me, I'm completely with you. Um, like, I think if I had 10 rounds to split between them, um, it would be hard to get me off of St. Patrick's. But there are some people who do prefer the other thing. And I think this is when it comes into how you rate courses a little bit as well. You know, who are you rating for? Because um, because not everyone likes the same thing. So are you just being an arbiter of what is good for people like you? And when I say you, I'm not talking you personally, kind of all of us who do anything to do with that. Or to what extent are you able to say, if you like this kind of course, you'll probably like courses like this. Um, but but I think there's there's clearly been a massive trend in your ratings and, and every magazine's rating, or certainly lots of them, not, not all of them, but lots of them over the last few years to this playability places you can enjoy it loads of fun which frankly um i i wholeheartedly like um but there are some people who still say no 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 i want to have a golf course i think let me get an example trump international in aberdeen is a much better course than cruden bay because at trump international i'm really really tested and cruden bay i'm not going to be tested as much now personally that isn't how i'd see them but some people do it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Like, I don't know what it is about golf. Like, even if, if you go back to the days of like pros tips in uh, old school yardage books, they all sort of use rhetoric, which is about how hard the hole is and how it's a card wrecker and how you know you have to hit a long straight drive. It's all about the the thing being difficult. Um, I don't know where along the way we lost the idea that it was supposed to be fun. Yeah, although I think that idea has come back. So I think now, mm-hmm. and some would say, has the pendulum swung too far the other way? Um, but 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 I think we're moving back towards the fun side. I mean, certainly, Dan, in your rankings, I, I I absolutely see that coming through, which is just a great thing. Just on just on the the, the choice thing, you know, I have a, um, a panelist last year who um, is open mouthed that people are speaking so highly of St Patrick's Links, and the reason that he says that is because he is um, obsessed with agronomy. Um, and he has talked to me at length about the grasses at um, St. Patrick's Links, and then he gets very cross when I say um, I'm less concerned with what the grasses are than how the grasses play. Uh, and one of the things that struck me about St. Pat's was uh, was the way it played properly. So are the greens the best greens we've ever put it on? No, they certainly weren't. But, the, but did the ball react on the uh, on the ground as I wanted it to, uh, like no new course base that I've ever played before? You know, it was making the right noise and, and, and releasing out. But, he, you know, he, he couldn't go near it. And, you know, you have to respect um, people have different opinions. And, you know, I go back to what my old journalism 
tutor taught me all those years ago, which is don't take yourself too seriously. You know, ultimately it's tomorrow's fish and chip paper. So sometimes when you, you know, when you go down that route, um, it's just worth taking a step back and saying, well, you know, the, the people do have different opinions. Um, and, and yours, you know, is only that an opinion. So yeah, I'm, you know, you have to be respectful of that, but equally, you know, there is, I, I feel I can justify, uh, the courses that, uh, that, that we rank higher. And I think if there's some consistency in it, um, and people understand what they're getting from, from a ranking, then, I think that's a that's a really good start. So you, you you're true to what people are expecting you to provide. I really want us to get into how we rank golf courses. I do feel like we'd have need to have a, a tiny little nod to the Highlands and the other courses that uh, that David mentioned. I've never been to King Uti. I don't know if you have done. I haven't. No. So that is one. Jim past it. Yeah. To be honest, with you I'd always stopped previously in a boat of garden, and I like boat of garden. Um, and I wouldn't say don't stop there, but I was just as happy at King Usi as I've been there. said Boat of Garden, which I've probably played eight or nine times. Um, yeah. It is, it's interesting that you picked out the Highlands alongside sort of Donegal because in many ways they're kind of, um, they kind of go hand in hand, don't they? And that you, when you get there, and they are in many ways difficult to get to, but you are away from it all and it is an opportunity to decompress. And the, there's, there's a lot of things that, um, a lot of the stresses of life are removed from being in those parts of the world. Like you can play golf more cheaply. It is easy to get around once you're there. There's a plenty of space. Like these are all things, aren't they, that we look for in golf courses and, and golf trips. I took my stag do to uh, Dornoch, believe it or not, which was sort of an interesting experience. And we've played an awful lot in the Highlands over the years. Um, and I think that I am particularly fond of that stretch of golf. Like you mentioned Fortrose and Rose Markey on the Black Eye, which is a br- absolutely brilliant, brilliant um short links course absolutely love it um and brawler has been in it's been in the press a lot hasn't it lately it's had some financial struggles and i think the sort of golfing community came together and and contributed quite a lot to the club's coffers should we say but we've had some brilliant experiences at brawler haven't we with uh sheep around the greens and f- fences protecting the greens from from the wildlife um and we've also been up to play wick we played wick in a kind of 60 mile an hour wind one day and i think it might be the only golf course in the country where it'd have been possible to play golf in that in that strength of wind um so it's an area that i think we're we're very very fond of and it's a great golf trip area isn't it because there are plenty of trophy venues but there are plenty of um local courses which can take cost out of a trip yeah and i th- i think when you do put a trip together assuming that that's an important factor, you know, the budget is is how do you mix them up? Um, and there are some areas that that lend itself more than others. But, but you know, even if you go to Fife, say, which has got some incredibly expensive golf courses, you can still get to Kinghorn or to Burnt Island. You know, there are places which will cost you literally £30 each, which you will probably end up enjoying, depending on the group of people who you're with, the weather on the day and all that kind of stuff, you know, you, you can have a fantastic time there. So I would, trying to I balance be, I them together. On your Twitter that you'd been, I saw on your Twitter that you'd been to Kinghorn. I went there last summer ahead of the Open. It's brilliant, isn't it? Like unbelievable yeah. views over the bay and like really, really good golf as well. Yeah, and I think in the summer, in the summer, during the week in the afternoons, it's about £16 to play. <laughs> And they've got a little Mackenzie Museum, haven't they? A very, very warm welcome we had there. It's um, they, they, they just like having people there. I think it's Old Tom, isn't it? I, I can't remember. Sorry, but, Old Tom um, but yeah, yeah. Um, it's a council-run course. Um, there's a lady who gives you a map to to try to explain how the hell to get round because about six yeah. holes cross <laughs> each other. Um, but but just just fantastic fun, amazing views. The conditioning was good when I was there. You know, and it's sixteen pounds. At King's Barnes, you wouldn't be halfway down the first fairway by the time you spent £16. 
yeah, on the five coast. It's it's quality. Right, okay. So let's let's get into then what makes a good golf course, how you two go about separating one from another. Um I've sort of I think we've we've done an all an, as much couching as it's possible to do to saying that it's about opinions and one person has a different from opinion from another. Let's so let's just put that to one side for a minute. If you have to sort of nail your colours to the mass. Dave, you've got a ranking system. Dan's got a ranking system for his uh, top 100 list. So how do you go about ranking a golf course, David? Presumably much of it is instinct, right? Um, yeah, lots is. And, and look, at the end of the day, it is it is just my opinion. So couched in that. Um, but but I've always been been someone who, who enjoys a golf course, which which you can get round in good time to begin with. So you aren't looking for golf balls all of the time. You're not spending every hole. You know, I think you said earlier, Dan, you're, you're able to get to the end of the hole is really, really important. Um, I think I think somewhere that is playable for all handicaps as well, um, but somewhere where the stronger golfer will be able to take advantage of that if they execute well. So a course where you get strategy and and that execution of that um, your individual shots to make that work is is important. I think I think somewhere with lots of options. You know, you play. Steve's going to be the West Course at North Berwick, and and the options for getting to the holes are multiple, and there's lots of different ways to get there, and it benefits repeat play. You want to go back and play again. Some of the modern courses, which which are great fun, and everyone can get around and tick all those other boxes. Maybe they're a little more two-dimensional, whereas I think somewhere where where you literally can go back and play again and again. It's why I love the old course so much because because that that keeps on happening. Um, there's there's a book out last year from Jeff Shackelford and and he talks in it about his criteria and and I really like them. Um, one is that you remember, if not all the holes, lots of the holes. Um, it's it's really really simple but if you played a course in a week or two later even just a week or two at my age you could remember the holes you want to go and play them again that to me counts for a hell of a lot um his other one he has in there is that of course you want to play every day and and again that 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 probably plays into that idea of something that's not going to overly beat you up you know um I've been lucky to go to Ardfin, so, and I really like Ardfin. I've been there a few times now. Fantastic course. Would I want to play it every day? Probably not. And as a result of that, it probably comes down a little bit on my scoring um, than some other places. So th- those are all things that are important to me. Um, some people do say, I get, yeah, but how can you rate such and such a course? Because the driving range isn't very good or the clubhouse isn't very good and all that when i rate a course i purely think about the experience on the golf course something which is hard to divorce from though is the setting i'll be interested in on your guys views on this in that um tom dope talks a little bit about you put a course next to the ocean and it's immediately got a huge advantage because of that and, and i think that is true you know, there is something magical about playing a course where where you're on the water. Sometimes you have to go onto the beach to hit your shot. Beautiful views. That counts for a lot as well. But having said that, there, there are a few courses which we've all played which do have wonderful settings next to the water, but the actual course itself isn't as good as others, which kind of lets it down. So I think setting is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, I think that's really interesting stuff. I think um, before we get into sort of Dan's... Um way of ranking golf courses it's worth saying i think people get so triggered don't they by golf course rankings that i think it says on your blog and we try and we try and say this in all of our output that it is just a starting point and we kind of accept the fact that um 
everyone has different opinions, but you have to start somewhere, right? And all you can do is be a sort of custodian of that opinion and say that we have treated this seriously and we have tried to go about this in the right way and then be transparent about how you've gone about ranking the golf courses and, and, and then just be prepared for people to disagree. Although yeah. it's always amazing how many people will disagree and then say, I've played eight of these 100 golf courses and this list is totally wrong. So there, there yeah. is an element of people will shout whatever. Um, and there's a lot of that, a lot of what David said rings true with about how we go about it, Dan, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. If you were looking for conflict, Tom, I think you've come to the, come to the wrong place. We've had, we've had plenty of conflict on this podcast before. We're still recovering from the Lou Stagner debate. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, that, that we set out on NTG Top Hunters from the start um, was that we said, we're going to separate the facilities um, from the golf course. So we say that the golf course begins um, on the first tee and it ends on the final green. I'm always careful to say the final green, not the eight. 18th green because it might be the ninth green or it might be the 12th green uh, and, that, and that's fine too um, I, I'm, I'm also very quick to point out that that's not to say that all those things that surround are not important but I just don't think they're to do with the golf course and you know my if I have any expertise it certainly doesn't extend to the like the architecture of a clubhouse or um, or, or the shape of a putting green or the, or the food that I might um, enjoy so I just think that's a that, that's a separate topic so I so what that means in our list is that um, some of the resorts with great facilities do a lot worse and that um, makes life quite difficult for me because uh, they don't understand uh, why they're lower and that makes them cross. Uh, and then there are other courses that are perhaps less heralded, um, simpler places uh, that, 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 that do well. Um, and I just have to, you can't fall on your sword the moment that's inconvenient. You just have to stick with that. Um, you know, it's just, it's just inevitable that certain courses will, will do better than another. And the other thing that, that, that we, we don't give any credit for is courses that um, are near other courses or even on the same site. Uh, and I, I don't particularly want to start naming names, but um, there, there are a few that spring to mind. Uh, it's obviously fantastic for a golfer if there are two or three or four courses in the same place. But I'm saying that I'm going to just the courses individually and, and, and either they're good enough within their own right um, or, or, or they're not in, in our view. So I think that's important. Now, I then spent hours and hours and hours trying to write out our criteria. And I always remember that one of those moments being absolutely punctured. Now, um, I was talking to... Uh, Clyde, um, and it, uh, um, who we who we've got to know well over the uh, over the years. Obviously, uh, uh, Clyde Johnson, this is uh, a dope disciple and um, and a, a deep thinker about golf courses. Always one of those people who has a different perspective. Fascinating to listen to. And I, I'd sent him um, my by breakdown of how I was doing it, um, which I thought was quite sophisticated. And he said, well, "What?" All of these categories are just designed, Dan. You're just saying it's design. And I looked at it, I thought, yeah, you probably, you're, you're probably right. And I, so, so I think, I think ultimately that's what I care about is, uh, it's designed. The, 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 there was nothing that, that David said that I would disagree with. I don't know if that's disappointing, but, but, but there wasn't. Uh, the, the one thing I would add, the thing that sets golf courses apart is to me, the, the golf course can only, can only get to the very highest level if the ball moves on the ground. That is the thing that sets the best apart, and um, and it's why for me um, and people will say that I'm that I'm um, that this is apartheid against parking courses. But ultimately, to me, if the ball doesn't move when it lands, I just think you lose so much of the subtlety and enjoyment, and it being different every time, and the importance of angles and all the things I absolutely love about golf courses. Uh, I just think they're lost on on a soft course. So. So to me, uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't bother me whether it's a Lynx or a Heathland or anything else. As long as the ball needs to be able to bounce and move and, and contours need to be involved uh, for me to, to to absolutely fall for a golf course. I can you know I can I can love going to play it. 
you know, Loch Lomond as one example. Um, and I can admire what they've done at Adair Manor, but there's a limit to me as to where you can get to if the ball isn't moving on the ground. Dave, are you going to say like hallelujah or amen or something? Or No, I, th- I, think, I think that makes lots of sense. Um, and I mean, it's, it's interesting you use those examples because I... I like Adair Manor a lot and actually I'm I'm a lot more of a, of a disciple of Lynx courses as well actually I think there are some parklands which are executed very 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 well um, if you think of Adair there, there's a lot of interest around the green because the way they've cut the grass so low is one cut all the way around you know that that, that brings interest to me so I think I think some of them can get can get close but for example you go to Paris and you play Le Board Old and Le Board New and that and that just brings out what you've said exactly. To be honest, you board old is a target golf course, um, which is incredibly penal as well. Doesn't hold so much interest. board new is glorious because you can absolutely play the ball on the ground. Um, I think that's a really good example of it. So yeah, I'm afraid um, we are we are pretty much aligned on this one, Tom. So it's, I mean, it's interesting stuff, isn't it? And so many of the venues that you, that you're describing are historic venues. They've they've been around for hundred hundred years plus. And there's been an awful lot of debate, obviously, but with the, the recent um, rollback of the golf ball announcement from the RNA and the USGA. Um, how much do you think that is affecting the experience at these historic venues? Like we've we've heard quite a lot, I think, from from tour players. We've recently spoken to Lee Westwood, who's been sort of very outspoken on the topic. Um, he thinks there should definitely be a rollback on distance, but he's he's coming from through it through the prism of the tall golfer and how he sees that skill is being removed from the game at the highest level and certainly driving as a skill where people are moving closer together because of technology what and we've also heard a lot about the other side of the debate which is how rolling back the ball and potentially the drive will make golf harder for the club golfer i guess this podcast about golf courses so you two are um, single-figure golfers or thereabouts, you, you're obviously quite capable at the game and you're out playing some of the, the best historic venues in the game. Do you see that equipment has gone so far that it's spoiling the experience? of It is re- helping to remove the importance of angles from the game. Is that something you see when you're playing a Presswick or where you play in a seating crew or any, anywhere that's been around for a long period of time? I mean, it isn't for me. So I, I am, I will say, very pro rollback. I think people like me will see virtually zero difference. I think actually the USGA and RNA could do more to make the case for that. I know they put out a chart, but but they should be saying a little bit more about that. Um, it will make no difference to me whatsoever. And and actually, the courses don't make too much difference for me. I, th- I think maybe um, some of those top open courses have maybe tightened the fairways a little bit too much and that's partly because of this factor because of the air distance um sometimes it can add to a slow round if i'm playing and there's a group in front of me who've decided to go off the back tees which aren't designed for them but they're longer back tees than they were 20 years ago so so that that probably is impacting me because it's meaning i'm spending 20 more minutes on a golf course and i don't think that's a great thing um but in terms of when I look at how the courses are now, I typically pay a set of tees, which is six and a half thousand yards. It's got to be playing pretty fast for me to go over that. Um, and at six and a half thousand yards, I'm pretty much still playing the same course that, that, that the architects originally designed. Um, so so that, that actually works for me. However, I think the problems of um, lengthening the courses, putting back tees, um, and just for the pro game, we we aren't seeing them hit the variety of shots that I want to hit them. So for all those reasons, 
I'm keen for it for it to come in. Um, for me, an amateur mid-handicapped golfer, I don't think the courses are making that much of a difference. So what if you, you talk about courses at 6,500 yards? What if you took somewhere that is below 6,000 and that's you know as far as it goes off the tips or even, or even shorter still? So yeah. I guess close to you would be somewhere like Kilspindy. So do you yeah. think that... Do you think that somewhere like that, the experience has been has been damaged by people, everyone being able to dr- be able to drive so many par four greens there? For example, like if you were to roll back equipment, let's say twenty five percent, do you think it would improve the experience at places like that? Well, but but when we talk about rolling back equipment twenty five percent, that's for the top professional golfers. So if yeah. they roll back twenty five percent, I might be rolled back five percent or six percent or maybe ten percent. Um, Look, I, I, I therefore really don't think it makes that much of a difference. Now, technology probably means these days I hit it a bit straighter than I used to, and I probably still hit it a little bit further, but but my average drive is probably 230, 240 yards max. Um, so there's not that many par fours I'm getting up to. And that, you know, there's some information out there from Arcos, for example, when they look at those average drives for average golfers. Um, they aren't getting up to that many par fours. And frankly, if you do get up to a few par fours, that's quite nice. Um, so at my level of the game, and for the vast majority of average golfers, I would leave it as it is. And I think that's what the proposal is doing, really. Um, yeah. But I did, when I was in New Zealand, I played straight off the plane the first round. Um, I played a lovely course called Jack's Point with three guys 20 years younger with me, um, a Canadian, Mac. Boucher, who hits the ball the most incredible distances and incredible things he does with the ball, and a couple of other pros, they were hitting the ball 350 yards on most holes, and they were getting up to virtually every par four with a flick of a wedge. I'd love it to come in for those guys. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't pick and choose, can you? Because then we end up in that awful place of bifurcation. No one wanted that. But, but, but I think the solution that they've come up with kind of is hopefully, and perhaps it's not gone far enough, but, but genuinely, these... Um, the, the the overall impact should be hardly any difference for me, but more significant for those guys. And I and I think they could go further and further with that by going further with what they do with the ball and with the club as well to have virtually zero impact for me, but bring the top end of the game in. Um, and if we can do that, it will mean that some of these courses we talk about are more relevant. Will they hold crow events ever again? I'm not sure that some of them actually want to anymore, um, but it would be great to be able to um, see that happen sometimes. Yeah, I think that's, that is a red herring. It's, for me, it's more about sort of in, protecting the integrity of the architecture for everybody, not not so they can help hold the Benson hedges or whatever they used to hold. Um, so we've we've got a regular feature on this podcast, right? It's called Reader's Wines. We have a jingle. Now, Reader's Wines, it sees us take a look below the line, which is one of Dan's expressions on social media. Um, so you know what I mean, David. It's the bit where people say stuff that they wouldn't say to your face, basically. <laughs> and the, the, bit, the bit where they moan about everything with 100% certainty. Uh, Reader's Wines is supposed to be a smutty pun on Reader's Wives. Uh, and if you know what that is, then you should I be I am familiar with that publication. Uh, so this week, what we normally do is we look at, um, we just pick something random. But I think this week we've tried to prod people along on a bit on the topic of, uh, of golf courses and what it costs to play them. So we asked people on social media yesterday, uh, are top 100 golf courses now too expensive? 
Uh, I know this is a, a sort of topic close to your heart, David. Seen some great stuff you've done on the cost of these courses previously. A little flavour of what people have had to say about it is there's been a significant increase in cost in the last 10 years. Uh, they're still cheaper to play than the equivalent course in the US, which is why they're full of US visitors. This particular person wouldn't pay more than £150. Someone else is blaming Top 100 rankings, saying that Top 100 lists have become popular and that's caused expensive out-of-reach green fees. I have to say, I did go a bit ashen-faced at that because we definitely have told people before in uh, forums that high rankings mean they could put their fees up. So, yeah, guilty, as David Brent would say. Um, someone else said, no, they're fully booked. It's just supply and demand, which is hard to argue with. Uh, and yes, there should be a reduction for golf union membership, which is something you see at some places where you'll have a sort of overseas rate and a domestic rate and a, an even closer to home domestic rate, which I think is sensible. And just to give this some context, uh, Turnbury, which is often number one in many in many people's lists, is £495 per round in the height of summer. Uh, West Lanks, which I think gets into the bottom of most top 100 GBI lists, is about £195 in the summer. And I'll Woodley, my own course, which is normally around 50 or so in most lists, is £190. should say they're peak summer prices, and obviously there are cheaper ways to play these places, shoulder rates and open days and the like. Um, but there is definitely something triggering about the cost of golf, the cost of good golf courses for people. Um I guess the two sides of the debate are, one, we want to be able to keep these places accessible to, to all golfers. It's one of the things that sets our game apart is that we can walk in the footsteps of our heroes, hit the same shots that we've seen win Open Championships and all the rest of it. And the other side of it is there's the commercial reality that people will charge what people are willing to pay. So whilst the Americans keep coming, it feels like a trend that's here to stay. Um, I think golf is expensive would be my personal view. You've done a lot of work on this over the years. David, what's your what's your data telling you about the cost of green fees? Yeah, I, I actually just um, have started doing doing the research for the twenty twenty four green fees. So every year I look at the top hundred courses, and, and it's a it's an amalgamation of your list and two other publications to come up with the top hundred of of the courses which you're able to to play with a green fee, um, and look at the inflation year on year and. Um, and I was just looking last night ahead of this, just just at the top thirty courses on that list. So in in two thousand and twenty, so what they announced the year of COVID in effect at the beginning of that year, the the average to play the top thirty was two hundred and twenty one pounds. Um, if if that had gone up with inflation, because inflation, as we all know, has been significant over those last four years, if it had gone up with inflation, that that would be two hundred and sixty pounds now. Um, it's actually over £300. So you'll be hearing a lot around inflation going up. Um, well, for those top 30 courses, they've, they've gone up this year at twice the rate of inflation. And, and, that, and that really is um, seeing some very, very significant increases at certain places. And it does feel like, like that top end is just seeing how high they can push them. Um, and from a revenue point of view, um there's a lot of clubs now and and again i'm talking here about the very very top end those top 30 40 courses who are making more money than they've ever made in the past from green feeds um and they're doing a few things with that money so some of them are actually reducing the number of green fee times that are available because there's only so much money that they need so they're saying okay let's let's not make as many visitors um places available 
Some of them, I always say, ah, but we can play in the winter and it isn't that great. Well, there are some of them now which are, which have stopped doing winter green fees completely because, well, we don't need the money. So let's not do that. So that kind of takes that away from us. Some of them are investing in the facilities. And I do think there's there's a bit of a risk you get into a vicious cycle that there I was speaking to a GM who said, we, we don't make any profit, David. Everything's going back into the club. Well, it's going back into the club and you're spending money on on things that you think you need to spend the money on to get more of the tour groups visiting you. You know, do you really need an upgrade to the clubhouse? Do you really need um, to, to, to keep the course in a condition where it's never been in the past? Well, yes, we do, because we've got to justify our £350 green fees to keep it going. So you get into a bit of a vicious circle with that. Um, and, and there's definitely an argument. People say, just be quiet. There's a columnist for one of your competitors who, whenever I put it out, says to me every year, just count yourselves lucky that we can play these courses. And, you know, that's that's true to an extent compared to if you're in the States where you can't play Pine Valley or Cypress Point or Wigan Foot, you just can't play them. So I get that argument's there a little bit. Um, but but I do think that some of these courses have got, and perhaps I'm being a bit of a romantic, a responsibility to have to have average people able to play their courses without it being something they've got to save up for for 10 years to do um and and i think there there is a bit of that responsibility um but i'm being very naive people will say supply and demand and they are right and a lot of these top courses are just seeing how far they can keep on going i've seen a couple of the prices already for 2025 come through and believe me, it's not going to stop. It's just going further and further and further. And it, and it, and it is a shame. Um, and maybe it's reality, but it is a shame. So I have um, a particular bee in my bonnet about St. Andrews um, with this uh, and, and the old course, um, because I was lucky enough to play the old course just after COVID, 2021. I think it was £195. Um, which which some people might say is still on the top end, right? Um, that price now in 2024 is 320 pounds. Um, now I'm sure I'm sure that, that that St Andrews the Trust would argue that um, they were vastly below their competitors in terms of um, what other big courses within that within that like were charging, and and that was true. They were, um, and now the price is much more comparative with say Muirfield and so on, and 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 the the, the kind of courses and the conversation that, um, that 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 they should be put in with. But what what you were talking about, David about the opportunity for the average golfer to go and play that golf course really resonates with me with St. Andrews um, because it is the home of the game. Um, because there has been, um, if you go back through history, um, a real uh, distinction with how that land is used. You know, if you think about the charters and so on, the land for the people, you know, the, the, the whole point of the, the whole point of those charters and the historical and not charging a green fee on the old course for, for, for so long until relatively recently was that everybody would have the chance to play it. And, and um, it, 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 is, it, it, it makes me mad um, that, a course like that so steeped in history is now becoming out of reach um, for the average golfer. Because, you know, I mean, we've, we joked a lot about me paying for golf courses, right? Uh, but I will never pay £320 to play the old course. I will never pay that fee. And that means that I might never play the old course again. And that's quite a sobering thought for me. It's sort of like 46 as someone who's likes to feel that they're steeped in the history of the game. And I, and I do agree with you, David. I do feel that there is a, 
of course, um, you know, it costs money to maintain these golf courses. Of course, uh, trusts and, and, and private members clubs and proprietary courses have to make money, whether they class that as surplus or profit. Um, of course, there is a responsibility to do that and a responsibility to membership, but there also should be, with these very, very high-level courses that are steeped in history, the opportunity for everyone to say, one day, I'll, I'll go and play that golf course. And Turnberry's £495. It's £595 during Open Week. Who's playing that? Well, what we're see- it's what we're seeing and so we run um, an event series called the Top 100 Tour, which is 80 events or um, golf courses that are featured in one of our lists. Um, and we're de- we are def- we definitely see a ceiling that people just won't pay certain prices. Um, and I would say that for a sort of Top 100 stalwart, like an Old Woodley, for example, there seems to be a limit, which is somewhere south of 150. Though people will pay over £100. And even for an open venue, once once we go beyond two hundred and certainly two hundred and fifty pounds, becomes very 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 difficult for us to sell those to sell those courses at that price, because they're priced for Americans. It's it's interesting. I was looking at some availability for this summer, and and in Scotland, um, you know, very very hard to get. Muirfield sold out last March for this summer. North Berwick's pretty much gone. Kingsbarns is tough. Uh, Royal Dornick's tough. In England, it's pretty different so i was looking at um st george's loads of availability they they put their green fees up a lot this year um lots of availability it's availability quite a lot in the northwest still so i do think and, and it's the same in ireland you know you go to county down in port rush and they sell out instantly but there's other parts of the country there is still availability so i do wonder whether you've got to the stage where i think and i do have exposure to the market i deal with them the groups from america are still coming but I do get the sense that actually there are fewer domestic people because, frankly, those times at Muirfield are the, and the like are almost all American. I think that the domestic golfer, there, there are fewer now playing those top um, particular courses. But I don't know if the clubs mind if they're hitting the, their revenue targets. I'm not sure there is a sense of a responsibility. Um, I think they're hitting their revenue targets. And obviously some will be exceptions but generally i don't think they really mind who pays no and it, there's, there is an opportunity isn't there for um because it's quite a narrow sort of target list for americans coming over to bag open venues or trophy venues or go to the big irish courses so there is an opportunity i think for some destinations in further flung parts of ireland certainly and in england to establish themselves if you think about things like the north norfolk coast or yorkshire yeah. where we're from um, or places like North Wales, like there's an awful lot of good golf to be had for a for a domestic tourist. Yeah, so actually, two trips I'm doing this year, purely myself, areas I've not been to, is the um, southwest. And you know, looking at the green fees down in the southwest and just the amount of golf and the nice places to hang out, you know, for half the price it would be in Scotland. Like I'm putting together a trip there, and again in Wales as well. I think you're absolutely right to call that the green fees there. And I'll be really interested to see your list when it's out later, Dan, because the green fees there are probably a quarter of what you're paying for some of those courses in Scotland. So, so heading there now, clearly those places are a bit harder to get to for some people, but not for others. Um, hopefully there's still some value out there. I, I, I think something else we've seen certainly in Scotland, uh, I was talking about the trip to the Highlands. Some of the green fees at those courses around world or are probably twice what they were six or seven years ago. So it's, it's almost like as the top courses are priced up, 
everyone else has floated up with them, um, which is why the likes of the Kinghorns or the Burnt Islands or the Four Troves and Rose Marquis, you really have to search for some of those to make a balance because you can't just play the courses the next level down and expect to get a good trip or cheap trip. There's a, ma- a massive trend in um, courses pricing down from their local open venue. That's 100% the thing that happens. Yeah, um, You see that in England's Gulf Coast, green fees going up at places like SNA and... Um, Hillside near neighbours to Birkdale, obviously. Just a um, cu- couple of things to to add. Um, I always think with the Northern Irish courses, and especially with um, Royal County Down, to remember that in the seventies, eighties, nineties, literally no, there was no tourism there. No, nobody was going to Northern Ireland, so like the, these these places weren't really on the map. I mean, no, like nobody was talking about um, County Down in that period. So there's an element, I guess, of it being um, cyclical. And I think you know they, uh, they they were so underappreciated for reasons nothing to do with the golf courses for for, for so long. That there's, uh, you know, it's lovely to see that those two courses, uh, Port Rush and County Down, are now two of the most sought after on planet golf. I mean, that's a that's a pretty wonderful story when you know there was basically no tourism to Northern Ireland for many years. Um, and then I, I was just thinking about the the, the case of Dunbarney when. Uh, they had the misfortune to open in the year of the pandemic. Um, and obviously, all those bookings they had, there were no, no Americans coming over for that season. And so they made the decision to uh, to offer some much reduced rates um, and uh, and that they had an even cheaper rate up, uh, for, for, for Scots, didn't they? Um, or was it for, for five residents? Anyway, they, they got a lot of, lo- of local golf um, um, over that year at that, um, at that reduced Mark and it, I think it, they think it helped them in terms of uh, their PR because they weren't seen as being you know the, the King's Barnes level that they were significantly cheaper. But I think it also reflects the, the, the reality that the, the, the price is set by the essentially by the North American market. And as soon as that when that market was then cut off um, for that period, uh, then suddenly they had they had to establish a new price point because in in numbers nobody was going to pay. Um, whatever, whatever the price was, 300, 350 pounds. Um, and I, I still think, and, and I'm sure David, you'd, you'd be able to, to comment on this, so that we still haven't quite caught up from, from COVID because effectively for, for, for the Americans, there were sort of almost two years, 2020 and 2021, when they didn't come over. So as I understand it, a lot of, a lot of trips have been rolled back a year, rolled back a year. And then what's more than a 2022 open at St. Andrews meant that the available at St. Andrews is much lower in that summer. So there is still people catching up with, well, by rolling trips over by a few years yeah i i I think it's 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 almost through but i think what also maybe covid factor is um there's a lot of people who just kind of well let's do that trip because you never know what's around the corner so there's almost now that covid factor might actually be with us for the next generation of um the demand from the north american market is really really strong now what might change but i don't think it's on the cards we've got an exchange rate of the pound to the dollar at 127 so it's so it's good value for americans coming over still so I think were that to change and suddenly we went back up to 170s, 180s again, suddenly it gets much more expensive for the Americans and maybe then the price sensitivity would kick in. But there's not much price sensitivity for them as it stands at the moment for a certain segment of the market. Um, So, yeah, I think that COVID factor is there's now a lot of people wanting to make sure they do a trip of a lifetime. Um, And that might keep on going. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point that you make about the... um the price sensitivity of the US market because quite a lot of what you hear is that people will be encouraging golf clubs to charge more because that's what Americans expect. They just, they relate um, quality to price like completely directly. I thought you made an interesting point earlier about the kind of self-fulfilling or the, the vicious circle of it all. And I think you see this not just in the um, 
not just in the very top end trophy venues, but if you go a tier down in places that have been sort of bathing in this sunlight of increased visitor green fees through the COVID boom. And so they've charged more money, but with that becomes a higher expectation from the visitor. And that might be something as simple as better range balls, or it might be something as a car park that will allow a massive bus to turn around in, or it could be just spending more money on the golf course. So it's in more, it's in better condition more often. Um, goodie bags for visitors, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things cost money. So all of a sudden, the economics of the golf club, which is essentially a members club, have changed because they're now saying, well, we need to charge more money because we've just spent 200 grand on an irrigation system because we had to do that because that's what people expect. So I think that is where the sort of danger lies, is that if this is... If, if clubs have now kind of rebuilt their commercial model to be reliant on reliant on inflated green fee numbers at inflated footfall, then that that's not necessarily here to stay, is it? Yeah, I think I think that's that that's a really good point because were that to dry up for some reason, then they've got a cost base which is higher. Um, and I mean, again, it's a risk of being a bit of a romantic. I think there's a homogenization that we've seen at that top end as well. You walk into the pro shops and and they've all got the same gear. They've, 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 you know, it's it just feels like it's more playing to that one part yeah. of the market, and that and that experience just feels like you're not getting the same quirks, the same different feelings. The the other thing I would say is there has been a bit of a beneficiary of this, which is members of clubs. So where I am in East Lothian. A lot of the clubs around me haven't put the subs up for the last couple of years. Um, and and actually, that causes problems in itself, believe it or not. So no one leaves a golf course in East Lothian now until they die. It used to be, if you were a member at uh, North Berwick or like a Gullen or Dunbar, if you were starting a family and thought you weren't going to play as much golf or if you were moving away with work, you'd probably leave the club. And when you're ready to join again, you'd join again. Well, when you're paying eight or nine hundred pounds a year for that um, particular membership, you you aren't going to leave because that's basically one four ball, right? And you can sign a guest on for a very good price as well. So now we've got the position where members are basically paying less year on year when you account for inflation because they've had the same for a couple of years. No one's leaving. So you've got golf club demographics are significantly changing as a result of that. Um, so there's all kinds of other factors coming through, which which are impacting what it feels like to be at a golf club or to be a member of a golf club. Um, and all these are unintended consequences. Um, but But a lot of it comes back to because the clubs are seeing just how much revenue they can get from sometimes a smaller and smaller group of people often coming from overseas. The homogenized experience is a very nice way of putting it. You now get a sort of welcome desk, don't you? You're a very smartly presented person. It's like, can you, you kind of wistfully think of the days of an RC pro who really didn't want you there, but it was all part of the experience, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. So golf is costing more. I think that's undoubted. I do want to try and finish on a positive um, rather than sort of hang ringing about the cost of things. So with both of you, I asked you to try and put together uh, a trip that you could do over the next 12 months for under £400, um, just including the green fee. So we're not factoring in accommodation or petrol and all the rest of it. Things that we can control directly. So the cost of the golf. So a three-day trip. Um, it wasn't too tight with the parameters. I'm sort of interested to see where you've gone with it, whether we're playing six golf courses or four golf courses or how you've done it. But who wants to go first? Dan, you go first. How have you, how have you gone about putting together a, a, 
a trip for four hundred pounds. I'm loath to say budget because four hundred pounds is still a lot of money. Well, I think the um, you didn't clarify whether we we had to uh, factor in the cost of transport. So um, I've, I've got three options for you. Um, the, the the two places where I think the best value is um, uh, 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 over my travels. Uh, one is um, I was going to say Wales, North Wales specifically seems to be. Um, uh, even more competitively priced, so I think that that is an amazing trip. Um, Bull Bay is a, a real favourite of mine um, that people don't go to uh, too much, and obviously uh, you can you can sweep up Conway um, and Abu Dhabi and Royal St David. So that is um, an amazing trip, and you are compromising nothing on the quality of your golf on that trip, and you are getting um, some some fantastic GPI top one hundred courses there. So that is um, a phenomenally good option, and obviously this all depends where you come from. Um, but it, North Wales is quite accessible. Um, you know, you're not, you're not too far off from turning away from the northwest of England, and you uh, and you can find yourself uh, on that coast. So that's a great option. Uh, have, the, you, the, the um, other... have you factored in the cost of speeding tickets on that road that goes across the top? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, and then the, the other um, part of the world that I think is great value and has got significant charm would be the Northumberland coast, uh, where again you can get some fantastic value and some. Very interesting, quirky, uh, distinctive golf courses. Um, you know whether that's a, um, a Bamborough Castle or a, a Dunstanborough. Uh, we're, all, we're all big fans of Gosick. Uh, fantastic value, uh, great golf course. I mean, very very accessible for uh, for you, David. I mean, it's, it's basically in Scotland, isn't it? So that's a. Uh, so I think Northumberland again, lots of charm. Um, you're never far, from, never seem to be far from the sea. Uh, castles, beaches, uh, not many people. Uh, that that ticks a lot of boxes. And my and my other option, if we weren't factoring in transport, would definitely be to look at the Scottish Islands so um, and you really wouldn't pay much in green fees there you know if you, if you took yourself up to um, uh, um, to Ullapool and then and then went across um, to, to, to Storn away um, and then worked your way down past uh, the US and Askenish um, Mouth Harris and Bower and then who knows all the way down um, might even end up at the, at the Macri I don't think I don't think we can forget Arfin on this budget but the, uh, <laughs> I think that those Scottish Islands uh, offer some amazing um a uh, value. Uh, it's just the, the complication of the uh, of the logistics, um, and obviously the, the, the takes a bit of getting to and getting around. But the three options there, that I think, are fantastic value and some great golf. So Dan's gone sort of loose and ethereal, and just sort of sowed some seeds about areas we can point ourselves at. I've got a sense that David's going to give me a much tighter response to this brief, and he said, "I can play hit. Come on, don't don't disappoint me." Yeah, well, actually, one of them was the Northumberland as well, because I think that's that's just a lovely trip to do. If you're wanting a big night out, you can have a night in a Newcastle as well, uh, which is obviously good fun, and then go up to Goswick, to Bamber, to Dunstable, to Annick. That, but that one I would absolutely do and say that it's on the budget. The, the other one, and I always think it's a bit cheating talking about anything a bit more remote, but... Um, but I would say that trip to the west of Scotland, it's not as hard to do as people think. People think, oh, Macrahanish, Macrahanish Dunes, Dunavity and Arran, it all sounds too difficult. It's really not very difficult. You get yourself to Glasgow um, and when you're in Glasgow, you can either get the ferry across to Arran. And when you're on Arran, um, you have to play Shiskin and Corrie. Shiskin is £36, I think, next year. Corrie's maybe 25 um, you can play Brodick as well, which is about the same amount of money. You go to Lamlash if you want. So you can basically play, you, you could do the whole trip just there. Um, but actually, you can then get the ferry or come back via Campbelltown um, and do Macrahanish at 125. Mac Dunes is less than 100. Dunavity will be 
half that again. So frankly, you could do a trip with, it's a bit more than three days. If you're going to do three days, just do one of these. If you can do four or five days, do them both. Macro Hanish, Mac Jude's Dunavity, maybe Cowardale. Then over to Aaron to do Shiskin and Corey. Those courses would cost you £290. Um, I did it last year, took the ferry with a car between four of us. That came out at £30 each as well. We stayed in an Airbnb um, on Aaron and we paid £90 a night for the four of us. So we actually did did that trip for around £300. Um, so people think it's really, really hard to get to. It's not. When you're in Glasgow, it's a three-hour drive to Macrohanish. It gets light at four in the morning. It gets dark at 11 in the evening, right? So there's plenty of time to play it. Um, so I would encourage people to get over there because you haven't seen the green fee inflation. Uh, Macrohanish did put their fees up two or three years ago, um, but the, but they've held them pretty much since there. And the other places are tickling them up maybe two pounds a year. Uh, so that that would be the one for me. And embrace the journey, right? You're saying it's it's not as hard as people think to get to, but I mean, the journey's all part of it, isn't it? Catching the ferry, getting you, putting your clubs in a flight bag, this is all part of the whole thing. Uh, I think that's absolutely brilliant advice, absolutely brilliant advice. Um, we've been talking for well over an hour, by the way. Um, that was brilliant. I really, I really hope people have taken something from that. In that, yes, the cost of golf at the top end is uh, beginning to get out of the reach for some of us, but there's still masses and masses of golf out there on these aisles that's well within the reach of most people's budget, and it's it doesn't drop far in terms of quality. So, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go and book a golf trip. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Dan and David. Best of luck on Thank your you. travels to St. Lucia. I guess someone's got to do it. Perhaps see you in Orlando. Um, Steve and I are now going to go off and talk about rules because that's the sort of thing Steve likes to do. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Lovely. Thanks a lot, guys. Really good to speak. Thank you. So now we've got rid of them too, Steve. Basically, we've been waiting for them to go so we can have our little private chat about the rules of golf. It's time for Rules Corner. Now, regular listeners will know that this is a, a series that happens every week where Steve, who is a rules official, qualified via the RNA, no less, stalwart of many of the game's big championships. So he sets me a rules question, often inspired by a reader's query, and I set about trying to answer it. Uh, last week, I was correct. So I currently re- lead 1-0. You lead the series 1-0, that's right. And you'll be happy to know that... Um... I am not going to delve into the bowels of the rule book through this to try and find something stupid to sort of level the scores. We're going to do this fairly. I've picked you. Um, I've, I've picked you a question that as I've actually ha- this has actually happened to me. I've done this myself, and I have seen it happen in competitions as well. So it's not a stupid question. Um, it's not one designed basically for me to level the scores. It, it, it does have some wider interest, and it, and it will give you a chance, Tom. Right, good. I'm glad to see that the spirit of fairness lives on. Absolutely. Shall I reveal? Yeah, let's do it. So, so this one happens in rule. You'll see this happen in rules quizzes a lot. It's the kind of thing that comes up in a rules quiz. But I actually did this at my own captain's weekend, and I have seen it happen um, in other competitions. So 
this is focusing on a on on a prize. A winner's prize has been awarded to a player. So the competition's been done. We've got into the clubhouse afterwards. We've all had a nice pint. The winners have been announced. The winning prize has been awarded to a player. Only for another player to tell to then tell the competition committee the next day, or usually down the track, that they returned a lower score. Someone has a look and discovers they were right. The, fit, the committee had failed to record that score. There are variations of this, which also include committees uh, adding up a, someone's score incorrectly or inadvertently failing to give them a prize. So we're, comp we're focusing, Tom, on admin here, um, not anything that a player has done themselves. And so what I'm basically asking is, in this situation where the prizes have been awarded, competition has happened, but a player has come forward and said, actually, I should have won the prize. I got a low score. And the committee have said, oh, yeah, there's your scorecard. And you, you have got the low score. How is this resolved? What do you do? Do you sweep it under the carpet? Do you forget about it? Is it too late to do anything? Or do we have to give a new prize giving? What do you think the answer to this question is? Well, I don't want to waste too much time because I've sort of instinctively gone in a specific direction. So I'm saying that for handicapping purposes, the score still counts. So that person will submit their score. And if they've been five better than the handicap, they'll get a, a reduction accordingly. I think in the particular case of the competition prizes, I'm saying that that is entirely within the administrators at the golf club's gift. So it is up to them how they treat it. I don't think there's anything in the rules of golf that covers it. I would say that the committee decide whether they're going to upheld the winner who's been announced, whether they're going to provide a new winner with a prize. It's up to them how they proceed. Sure. Should we now have a dramatic pause? Um, well, you are incorrect. Um, and I am going to level the scores at 1-1. One, one. So in the, in, in the example that I've outlined, um, the answer is that the committee have to give the prize back and reward it to the player with the lowest score. It's, outlined in, it's outlined in two places in the rule, uh, in Rule 20.2D2 and in Section 7D of the committee procedures. And the point is it's an administrative mistake on the part of the committee. It's a procedural error in relation to the administration of the competition. And in those circumstances, there is no time limit for correcting a mistake. That's if a match play result is final or even if a stroke play competition has closed. There are some examples given in, in, in both the rule and in the committee procedures about when this comes into play. And it includes miscalculating a handicap which results in the wrong player winning the competition or giving a prize to the wrong player because they have failed to post the winner's score. And in this situation, the rule adds, the mistake should be corrected and the results of the competition should be amended accordingly. The committee procedures are, are, are even firmer about this, actually. They say, if necessary, the committee should retrieve any prizes mistakenly presented and award them to the correct players. So if you... If you if you find yourself in this in this situation, give the prize back or double check those scores you've posted and make sure they're all right and you've got every score. That is incredible to me, and I guess that people wonder why golfers are so serious. I mean, that is a very serious thing, isn't it? Like it's an amateur competition. And what about the poor guy who's like made his speech? Surely they should just be able to ring up and say, "Look, sorry, mate, it's a bit late in the day, but do you want some pro, do you want a pro shop voucher?" I actually did this in my own captain's weekend. I missed out a prize. I ended up 
having to take a prize back off someone and hand it to someone else. And what I really wish I'd done, it was just an instinctive thing. And what I really wish I'd done was just handed the guy another prize out of my own pocket and just, you know, and just said, right, everyone's a winner. Um, but yeah, administer. I mean, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, obviously, I've written about this um, for my rules column this week. It'd be interesting to see what uptake it gets because um, these kind of administrative mistakes are a real curiosity of the rules of golf. I think they really are because, like, I just sort of instinct it's just a bit of fun. Like the prize is just sort of completely secondary. Like whatever, it's just a mistake, and people no. just be able to find a way. It's amazing there's a rule you, for you, that. You, you obviously haven't played in many open competitions. They're, they're not. They're not fun, other they get very serious. No, that's a really good one. Right, that was epic. Properly enjoyed listening to David and Dan talk about their views on golf courses and prompting us all to get out there and book a trip for this year. Uh, it was really sort of inspirational stuff. Thanks for listening. Please do give us a subscribe. I'm going to America, so next week I will be joining you from the Orlando County Convention Centre, the beating heart of the PGA show. And I have a very special guest, Hannah Holden, NCG's gear expert, chatting to us about all things equipment in 2024. Yeah, looking forward to it. There's been some really high-profile launches already, haven't there? And um, um, I'm, I'm trying to keep my wallet locked up so I don't spend any money. There it goes again, wokely paying for golf stuff. <laughs> On that note, see you later. Cheers.